0: All righty. So um, we're we're gonna take a look at the portion that Avery read um, for us this morning from Luke chapter nine. Um, thing is, gospels are filled with I, I like them because um, there's a lot of intense emotional encounters between people who are not Minnesota nice, um, not like Jocelyn and Schitts Creek. I can now make Schitts Creek references because I'm paddling up Schitts Creek. Um, is it Jocelyn, who the got the the wife of the guy who's the oh gosh, they have such characters. Anyway, the the mayor of the town, yeah right, uh, Jocelyn, I think it is. She she always smiles when she's angry, like oh if she's smiling she must be angry. She just can't express anger in a in a direct way. I'm I'm really hoping that Jocelyn loses it in season six. Is, tell me that happens because that would be just a That'd be freaking awesome, but um, I wanna see it. But um, the, the Gospels, on the other hand, coming out of a Middle Eastern culture, um, display a much more robust emotionality, thank the Lord, uh, refreshing, less guesswork involved, trying to figure out who's feeling what, where. So our portion today features anger, and we're gonna read it in the Sarah Rudin translation, the new translation. Um, now, it happened that as the days before he was to be taken up were attaining their full number, he fixed his intent on traveling to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, and their journey brought them to a village, the village of Samaritai, Samaria, to make ready for him. But those people didn't take him in because he intended to travel to Jerusalem. When they saw this, his students, Jacobos and Ioannis, James and John in English, asked, Boss, do you want us to call fire to come down from the sky and do away with them? But he turned and looked, took them to task, and they made their way to another village. Now, um, we often get high and mighty about other people's anger. We think it's ridiculous, and our own is fine, but. Uh, and James and John, especially to modern uh, readers, look totally ridiculous here, and Jesus' rebuke is just assumed, and it loses all its drama, it loses all its complexity and meaning. But but that is to ignore the historical context and the complexities of their anger, just like we miss the context and the complexities of our own anger often. Um, our anger often has ancestors, so it it can run really deep um, You know this if your ancestors were Holocaust victims or survivors subjected to brutal slavery or herded into reservations, all of that. So our our anger also has triggers from past events and from stories we tell ourselves about the past and from how our weeks going. So anger always has a context and awareness of the factors fueling anger. anger can really help us to understand it so we can come alongside it like a friend instead of an enemy. Instead of being so judgy about it which often doesn't help us so when uh i think i probably you know i'm running out of stories about my childhood you know uh when i was <laughs> when i was i think i was eight years old i'm playing in my backyard with jimmy Han, and he grabs the the hose and he starts going after me with a garden hose and my only my only uh you know my only move was to run toward him in order to grab it away from him. And at that point, he turns the nozzle to, like, laser stream. And excuse me for my language, but I yell, God damn you, Jimmy Hahn! And and in my eight-year-old brain, that's the absolute worst and horrifying thing that you could do to curse someone. And and I, as soon as it was out of my mouth, I was just totally scandalized by my horrible anger and I ran into my bedroom and I slammed the door and I'm sobbing I'm racked with guilt over my anger that I would do such a thing my my mother comes in and she just like takes me in her arms and I'm sobbing I said a goddamn you Jimmy Hahn and she just assures me I don't have the power to damn Jimmy Hahn to hell and besides he was hosing me in the face and Oh, the relief I felt in that moment was just uh blessed indeed. So Rob Rob Bell makes the case that many of the disciples uh who were following Jesus were pretty young by our, our standards, M- maybe teenagers even some of them. Um we, we hear about Peter's wife, so he would have been older, but we only hear about the mother of the mother of James and John, the two characters in our episode here. Uh, when they are called the sons of thunder in the Gospel of Mark. So either they were hotheads or they were the sons of the mother who was a hothead. So what was fueling their anger when they seriously proposed calling fire down from the sky on the Samaritans? Well, their their anger had a, a context. Um, they had, had a very intense week, for one, uh, at the beginning of Luke, Chapter Nine. Our reading is in Luke Chapter Nine. They are sent out by Jesus two by two to bring his message uh, to the small villages of the Galilee, the northern region of Israel, where they are now. And when they return from their uh, their you know project, uh, Jesus is at the height of his popularity in the Gospel of Luke, um, as evidenced by the uh, crowd attending the feeding of the five thousand. I think Emily talked about last week but but then their hopes are just like running sky high he drops the news that he's going to jerusalem where he expects to be rejected by the priests and punished by the romans despite his popularity there this news is followed by the most intense mystical experience they have it's it's recounted in in three of the four gospels it's mentioned in second peter Um, Like, this was a big deal experience, Uh, and it was just James and John, the two uh, who are featured in our story today. Peter and Jesus, they're on a mountaintop, and the atmosphere shifts. It's a thin spot, and Moses and Elijah appear in a vision that they all seem to be having together, which is a big deal. It's, It's too much, the intensity, and they get groggy, and they're kind of out of it, almost half asleep. And when it's over, the disciples proceed down the mountain ahead of Jesus, and they encounter, I think it's an an afflicted child, and all their efforts to aid the child with healing prayer are an abject failure, and then they are sent ahead into the village of Samaria. They're going south toward Samaria to see, because they're on their way to Jerusalem, uh, and they're, they're there to see if Jesus would be welcome for the night. So this was not—this is a super intense, high-emotion-packed week that they've had. Um, Their head is filled with Elijah. Elijah is the prophet that Emily mentioned in the kid minute, very important figure in Israel. Um, And they're like—they're thinking about Elijah because they've just had this vision. And as they're traveling south to Samaria, midway between the Galilee and Jerusalem to arrange lodgings for the night, um, so, Elijah the prophet. Now, the thing about the real prophets of Israel compared to the fake charismatic prophets of white supremacy we've heard heard bloviating over the last four years, uh, elevating you-know-who, kissing his you-know-what, is they they actually, the prophets of Israel, criticized the kings of Israel. Israel had a kind of a unique approach to monarchy that the, the, the the monarch had to depend on the tribal leaders and it also had to depend on the prophets. So there was, there was limitations to the, to the power of the monarchs in Israel. And the prophets kind of functioned like the free press is supposed to function in a democracy. Um, and they were like a significant check on the monarchs, especially as the monarchs wandered into corruption. So in the time of the divided kingdom, this would have been centuries earlier from the time of our story in Luke 9. There was a, a substantial split between the northern tribes, and the northern part it was called Israel, and the southern tribes which were called Judah. King Ahaz was the king in the north during Elijah's time, and Elijah kind of was the prophet who was keeping his eye on Ahaz. Well, King ah- Ahaz, we're talking, I guess, 8th century BCE, in that northern kingdom he had a palace and he had a temple in samaria it was a rival temple to jerusalem's temple in the south because there had been this big split centuries earlier so ahaz was was corrupt in in elijah's eyes Um, so we've got elijah we've got samaria and there was this episode in their sacred stories uh, it's in first kings when Ahaz fell through a palace window um, injuring himself, he's in bad shape um, he's heard Elijah is nearby and and that Elijah has received a message for him, hoping it's a good message see he sends uh, fifty soldiers to summon Elijah to the palace. Elijah is so upset with Ahaz for his corruption and for this you know brazen act of you know demanding that uh, sending soldiers to summon him to the palace, that when the poor soldiers arrive with the summons, Elijah calls down lightning from the sky and they're torched. Or so the story is told. This happens to the next 50 who are sent. And then the third 50, finally, they grovel you know, to Elijah and he doesn't torch them. So let's return to James and John in Luke chapter 9. Uh, chapter 9. When the Samaritan villagers uh, refuse hospitality for the night, this is probably the story in their mind that emboldens James and John to say to Jesus when he arrives, speaking of Elijah and Samaria, should we call fire down from the sky on these idiots? As if they could even pull that off when they've just failed to heal the afflicted child a paragraph earlier when they're coming down from the mountain, Amount of transfiguration, Luke nine is just so packed with things. Of course, this this is a very shocking thing to us. This story of Elijah smoting the soldiers in First Kings, a hundred men, you know, killed by Elijah, the great prophet of God, um, because um, it's shocking to us because we forget. We don't have a Jewish way of engaging the Jewish sacred uh, stories. Um, the church in, is dominated by Gentiles, and they have a whole different way of engaging sacred text than the uh, people from whom the sacred text uh, comes to us. Um, and in the Jewish tradition, like it's totally fine to debate the actions of God even to object to the actions of God or the purported actions of God. To be friends with God means we can argue with God. We can even challenge God. Um, In Genesis, for example, when the messengers from God came to Abraham with a plan to call down fire from heaven, another fire from heaven story, on Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, Abraham objects. Will the God of justice himself be unjust? Uh, what if there are fifty righteous in Sodom, who would be killed along with the the wicked? Doesn't that bother you? Um, and you know, when when Abraham makes some progress in the negotiations, he presses it further. Well, what about what if there are thirty? What if there are twenty? What if there are ten? Abraham stops the negotiations at ten. And and there's a midrash, meaning a rabbinic commentary from the sages of old, on this story that blames Abraham for stopping at ten. They say, what if Abraham had negotiated down to five? Sodom could have been spared. So in that reading, the lesson is don't give up negotiating too soon. So that kind of objection... Um, that kind of objection response to an action or proposed or purported action of God, let alone one of his prophets, was entirely within bounds in Israel's tradition. You know, not just any objections, but especially objections that were grounded in Abraham's reasoning. What Will the God of ju- justice be unjust? These were entirely legitimate, you would say, honored ways of engaging these stories. But James and John were not using their Jewish imaginations. They they were not questioning the actions of Elijah in the story passed on to them. And this is what I propose may have been part of Jesus taking them to task. So that, remember, they're on a prophetic mission to Jerusalem. That's why they're approaching the Samaritan village, seeking hospitality. For the night. Jesus had already informed them that he expected to face false accusation from powerful enemies that could lead to his death. It's a death he was willing to endure. He was on a mission of pardon, not vengeance. And in spite of that, they take the Elijah story that they're naturally remembering with their experience of rejection, and they take it at face value. In other words, they don't really engage it. They don't have the imagination to question Elijah's resort to violence in the time of King Ahaz. Well, perhaps Jesus did. And so he took them to task, it says. No other details are provided. And when no other details are provided, that's an invitation for us, hearing the story, to engage this in our imagination, to fill in the details to ask the I wonder what questions. How, how did that conversation go? Maybe something like this. He's like, lads, I know you're trying to imitate uh, in the days of King Asa, Elijah in the days of King Ahaz and Samaria, uh, but was Father, Ab- Ab- uh, Father Elijah's action just? Should we just go along with it or should we challenge it? like our father Abraham challenged the plan to call fire down from heaven on Sodom. Maybe you could channel your anger at this insulting rejection, this this offensive rejection from the villagers in Samaria, into something other than vengeance, do you think? And yet, when Jesus took James and John to task for their Elijah-like lightning strike proposal, We don't have to read this as a flat-out rebuke of their anger. We could read it as an objection to the impulse to channel their anger into vengeance. I think we actually have the earlier instructions in Luke 9 to these disciples to back such a reading up. Remember, this chapter begins with these words. This is um, Luke chapter 9, verse 1 through 5. Then Jesus called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and the ability to treat diseases. And he sent them out to announce God's kingdom, God's realm, and to cure. And he said to them, don't take anything on the road with you, or even a staff or a loaf of bread or silver coins or two tunics. That means, according to his instructions, they were entirely dependent on Middle Eastern hospitality. Um, which was the obligation to receive strangers to feed and shelter them, um, without which strangers would have just not had a chance as they were traveling through that region at the time. Um, and he says, and if any people don't take you inhospitably, when you go out of their town, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So these earlier instructions at the beginning of Luke 9 anticipate the situation later in Luke 9 when James and John are sent ahead to secure the Samaritan hospitality for the night. Um, And when they're rejected, which was again a deep offense in the Middle East, denying hospitality to travelers, their instructions from Jesus were, When I send you out, if people don't take you in hospitably, then leave them and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So at this time, um, shaking the dust off your feet would have been like a ritual gesture when you've, like, it's for a time when you've done what you can in a relationship and you've been rejected or been responded to with hostility nevertheless. It's like, don't just stay for the abuse, but leave. And when you leave, shake the dust off your feet as a as a public gesture, as a testimony against them. The gesture of shaking the dust off your feet is a way of saying, you know, I'm not taking your dust with me where I'm going. I, I'm shaking it off. I'm shaking off your words and their hostile intentions. I'm shaking off your accusations of false, I, fault, I'm shaking off your gaslighting. So we have, we have our angry gestures that we employ when we're angry and seek to make a testimony against someone, you know, flipping the bird, for example, is a gesture like that. Um, shaking the dust off your feet was definitely not a friendly gesture. And if we think of the dust as anger, We know from experience, it's not easy to shake anger dust off your feet after a a rejection from someone who has an obligation to treat us with hospitality. I mean, dust in general does not shake easily off our feet, as anyone with sandy beach feet knows. You know, you try to brush it off, you get out of the water, your feet are wet, the sand is sticking to your feet, you try to brush it off, right? Uh, But it sticks, and especially if it's me, if you gotta put socks on before you put on your sandals, I mean, it's really tricky. So you're brushing the, it doesn't, Oh, you go up and you see that shower thingy where the concrete is at the edge of the beef, you go up there, beach, and you, you, you wash off your feet, then you put your socks on, then you put your sandals on, you're styling, you're ready to go. But it's a very involved process. So, this is the third Sunday after Easter, I think, right? Um, And we see this combination in the risen Jesus. We see the absence of vengeance when it would be most appropriate after he's been publicly shamed in a horrifying way, crucifixion. Um, Just compare how the apostles treated Judas, who betrayed Jesus. you know from the new testament we know the apostles concocted two different like stories that don't that don't fit together about how judas died and there was just horrible horrible deaths and um even after pentecost the apostles are are you can tell they're still really injured by uh, judas betrayal they're angry at judas they're vilifying him um compare that response to the complete absence of any of that from the risen jesus toward judas I mean, it's like jesus is in a realm now that transcends vengeance and yet the risen jesus makes a point to show them his wounds the crucifixion scars on his hands his feet and his side those are not obliterated in the resurrection body he shows them to disciples on more than one occasion he, he's not like oh it was nothing i'm fine now he retains and incorporates his scars into his renewed body so the injuries of the past for the risen jesus are transcended but they are not forgotten Compare that with so much whitewashed Christianity that treats 350 years of the most brutal chattel slavery as if, oh, it's over now, you know, as if Jim Crow and then the new Jim Crow and then the latest attempt at reviving Jim Crow aren't all tied to it. Instead, it's, well, slavery was a long time ago, uh, bygones. You know, Jesus doesn't treat his so called past injury that way not even in his new age body. So, And whenever people are persecuted, his wounds light up, as he said to Saul after the resurrection, why are you persecuting me? So he, he's experiencing something of the pain and the anguish uh, that's connected by his um, identification and solidarity with those come who come after him who are mistreated. In other words, Jesus is treating anger like the complex thing anger is. So I don't know. Somehow this is a vision of God that doesn't dismiss our anger, that understands it, that takes it seriously. This is a God who takes us in her arms when we're angry, comforts us, befriends us, and helps us to make sense of our anger and to channel it. These are my thoughts on Luke chapter nine. So Cassie, why don't you lead us in a meditation?
1: Thanks, Ken. So we're going to move into our time of meditation. I just want to begin by validating that any emotion you're experiencing here in this moment is valid and worthy of recognition. We bring our whole selves, bodies, minds, hearts, and souls into this space where we can be fully human and fully ourselves with no shame and no pretending. Humanity is messy and it is beautiful and our emotions are part of what it means to be human. So let's start by closing our eyes. Whatever part of your body is connected to the ground right now or to your couch or chair really feel that grounding connection. Now take a deep breath in through your nose fill your lungs and when it's comfortable release that breath through your mouth. Continue this pattern of breathing at your own comfortable pace, nice and slow. Whatever primary emotion you brought with you into this space today, I want you to identify and acknowledge it. If you feel joyful today, acknowledge that. If you feel angry, acknowledge that. If you feel excited, frustrated, relieved, worried, thankful, overwhelmed, at peace. Acknowledge and accept your emotions as they are in this moment as you continue breathing. Try not to judge the emotion that you're acknowledging. Just recognize it, recognize it as being there and sit with it for a minute. Now, if you're comfortable doing so, imagine God or spirit or Jesus, as you understand them, sitting with you in this emotion. What did they say? What did they do? How did they react to this emotion that you were experiencing? do they show you love in this moment? From Psalm 36, How priceless is your unfailing love, O God. People take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. One more deep breath in and out. Amen.